0: To another episode of Epsilon Reporting on air, on air, on air, on air, on air, and we're live. Joined here today with Gabe. How you doing? Doing pretty good, man. Nice, good to hear. So uh, today we're going to talk a little bit of your own personal philosophy, possibly uh, touch briefly on ethics, and then also get into a bit of kind of identity and what role narratives play in our life. So uh to start off with if you can uh, present some brief
1: synopsis of your philosophy that is a, a big task um, brief 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 So I think the framework that I am operating with these operating with these days is one that's based in what's called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is this idea that, uh, moral questions aren't necessarily about what you should or shouldn't do, but it's a lot more about who you are as a person, what sort of characteristics you have, what sort of behaviors you have. And so the, the framework that I'm operating with is very much influenced by people like Aristotle and Ayn Rand, in which I'm trying to just be the best version of myself. And I think that's kind of the right way to live for everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, naturally, Unless
0: there's an extent of, uh, like some sort of mental illness. Mm -hmm. If you're living your, if you've devised a certain way of living your life, you've rationalized that it is like a beneficial and sometimes people even rationalize that it's a morally better way to live your life. And, um... I think everyone develops a moral compass, and we might even touch on that briefly in, in regards to like the seeds of self-hate, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. But I guess to pick that apart, what you mentioned, so the whole thing, virtue ethics, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically it's the identification of vices, so things that uh, detract you or remove you from your ideal self, and then virtues that bring you closer to your ideal self.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good way to put it. Um, I'm... I'm, I think, a little bit more comfortable with language that isn't, it isn't necessarily ideal self, uh, but maybe, like, your self-interest, um, which includes, I guess, your ideal self, but maybe your, your best self, your, like, flourishing self, your, uh, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess ideal self is correct there, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: and so is, with virtue ethics, are the virtues all the same? Like, uh, can they be uh, transposed from one person to the next? Uh,
1: generally speaking, within a virtue ethics philosophy, there is an attempt to make it universalizable, um, and because just by virtue of everyone being human, we kind of share these certain certain experiences, and there's certain facts about things that we need. We need food and water and stuff like that. And when you live in Earth in the 21st century in a like quasi-capitalist modern society, there are behaviors and. Uh, habits aka virtues that will maximize your ability to live the best life that you can live Um, and that's kind of largely a universal thing things like having courage not being a liar not stealing from people stuff like that Hmm. and so as of
0: like right now if I didn't know you what do you think some of your like behaviors are that would help me identify you as like virtue ethics being part of your
1: core philosophy Uh, I love that question. Uh, I think that, well, if you didn't know me and we were just having a very brief conversation, it's hard to say what would come out. Maybe thoughtfulness, Mm. some uh, self-awareness. I hope that I can present myself with some empathy. Mm. So things like that probably stand out.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was going to reframe it as like if I was... uh let's say, uh, Internet star. <laughs> and I was like, what philosophy is gay? And I was watching you all the time. And then you were uh, empathetic, you were present, stuff like that yep. uh, tip me off. And then, so, I guess, one, some questions I've kind of always been curious about is, like, I remember at one point you mentioned, uh, I know this touches briefly on, like, Ayn Rand's philosophy, but, uh, like, being selfish in yep. a relationship. And so, how does that... How do you apply that to your social interactions?
1: Yeah, well, we have to be very careful with that word, selfish. Um, It's a word I like to use, but I like to use it in part because uh, it's a little uh, Mm -hmm. attention-grabbing. And I think when I use it, I'm trying to sort of fight against any philosophy or any idea that is promoting a sort of self-hatred. And so I see self-interest as doing what's best for you, and I think that there's a right and wrong way to approach that. So for example, uh, getting addicted to heavy drugs isn't really good for you in any meaningful sense. It might be something you want to do, but I wouldn't say it's a selfish thing. And that's, that's maybe a really important distinction here, is that when I'm saying selfish, and I don't mean your impulses. I don't mean pleasure-seeking. I mean, really, what is the set of actions and behaviors that will motivate uh, your growth and your flourishing? And so that's what I mean when I say selfishness. Okay. Uh, real fast mm-hmm. aside, um, I, I was thinking about that, that, yeah, selfish is a very
0: charged word. Yep. And so many of our words are incredibly charged. And I think that presents kind of a minefield or a, uh, an obstacle course sometimes for linguists. And, or just uh, daily people trying to communicate effectively. Yeah. And so uh, I was uh, joking around with a friend where, like, I wish that words had, like, a Mark 1 or a Mark 2. And you'd say, like, this. And they'd go, <gasps> and you'd go, Mark 2. And they're like, oh, <laughs> in this setting. I understand that. Yeah. So... If I understand correctly, I might be, uh, kind of embodying some of the, uh, misunderstandings mm-hmm. behind, uh, parts of that philosophy, but, uh, you look for ways that like you and your long-term goals and how people can almost in a sense, serve it, serve you or like coexist with those long-term goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you asked the context of relationship and I can try to be a little specific there. Um, when you are approaching a relationship, you are not doing it for the other person. because if you're in a relationship that isn't about your joy and your happiness, you're going to hate yourself. just simply by definition. like what like what what does it mean to go on a date on some date with someone that isn't in your self-interest? Is it a pity date? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, are you some cuck simp who like has no self-esteem, you know? Um, that's that's sort of what I'm trying to get at. And so, when i'm approaching a relationship it has to fit within my overarching goals it has to fit within uh what it what is truly in my self interest not just my impulses not just my wants but my like needs and my strong core desires i uh
0: I dig that. And also to go kind of off that metaphor of like the date, like what are you? Are you just like really low self-esteem or do you have like just a ton of time to kill on your hands? Mm -hmm. And then that brings up kind of like a side question, which is why aren't you doing a better job of spending your time? Why do you allow either like corporations, businesses, or on occasion toxic people to spend your time better than you? Oh yeah. And so, yeah, why do you envision that? But what is, I can almost imagine your, your response to this to take like a term from market all that stuff uh, Mm -hmm. what is your idea or do you have any uh, idea of like value added to friendships or social
1: situations yeah well uh, part of any sort of relationship friendships business partner or whatever is an exchange right Uh, I don't want to spend time with people that don't want to spend time with me Mm -hmm. and they don't want to spend time with people who don't want to spend time with them there's if I'm hanging out with a friend is because that friend makes me laugh and I make them laugh, you know, or we have some sort of exchange of ideas that benefits us. It has to be mutually beneficial. Uh, I think a rational person of self-esteem doesn't want to spend time with people who are slaves, who are uh, just fanboys of them. They want to spend time with someone who's kind of a peer and Mm. someone that they're both getting this exchange of benefit from. Yeah, yeah, that makes
0: sense. And then um, our social interactions necessary for you to accomplish your goal?
1: In general, uh or, sorry, sorry, are you asking that if in general having social interactions and like relationships with people, like is that in people's self interest and in my self interest? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh I think you would have to be dealing with some very severe mental issues if connecting with other human beings wasn't an important part of your life yeah
0: yeah I guess like uh we are wired to crave that connection, yeah. but I could think of people without mental illness like um certain programmers or mm-hmm. something like that, people that uh, kind of that um the stereotype of coders and then also like survivalists or something like that uh, they have probably a way different version of how you uh, interact with a social situation,
1: yeah I mean if authentically you can be. Uh, fulfilled and flourish and be super happy without it, then all the power to you. But mm-hmm. uh, I I can't think of anyone I know off the top of my head who is like that and is actually happy. Mm-hmm.
0: You know. Uh, yeah, probably yeah. because like we're both uh, pretty social people, mm-hmm. and I, I don't have too many lumberjack friends or survivalist yeah. friends. Um, and then uh, in that case, like I know we've uh, talked about it briefly in the past, right. but uh, like what would your, like, kind of with the whole virtue ethics, what is your ideal self?
1: Ideal self. So it, it, it's hard to paint a really specific image. I can use some broad strokes here. Hmm. Uh, I, want, I like being someone who embodies self esteem. In an obvious way where like the way I carry myself in conversations or react with other people it's kind of obvious that I'm comfortable in my skin Mm -hmm. I like being someone who's productive uh, in the sense of not just like grinding away at a 9 to 5 that I hate or something but in the sense of like having goals and actively trying to achieve them and putting real effort to that and it's something that is a high priority Um, I like pursuing my creativity and those sort of tendencies. Um, I like being the type of person who's well-read and kind of can explore ideas. And so I would just say, think about the things that I obviously sort of love. Like I love building projects. I love reading philosophy books, and just crank those up. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the idealized version of myself.
0: I love it, and I think you're honestly relatively close to it. Um, so, I, I've been, like, personally wrestling with this, and uh, in one of my classes, we were talking about the whole, like, uh, intrinsic, extrinsic motivation, all that stuff, uh-huh. and um, I was thinking about, like, what I do, because I have, like, an ideal self, of course, yeah. <clears throat> I think a lot of it is weirdly narrative-based, and, like, uh, what I... What is it? There's, like, a theory of consciousness, which is, like, uh, the... Oh, damn, I should have done some more research. It's, like, the mirror theory or something, uh, where you are... You walk into a room, a theory of self, and it's, like, you walk into a room and you think of how other people are seeing you, and then you act to fulfill that, but the whole thing is cyclical. It's all in your own head. You're imagining what other people are seeing. And I... That definitely resonates with me because a lot of my... Uh, like the same virtues you listed off, like hardworking, determined, focused, yeah. stuff like that. I do, but a lot of the uh, the reason, the underlining reason, is because of the image that I want other people to see of me. Yeah. And so it will help me like achieve a lot of my goals. And long term, my goals, real succinctly, is just to like maximize honest, wholehearted and effective communication. Mm-hmm. Um so that goal leaves well, it definitely deals with people, but some of my the elements of my idealized self uh are like what other people can see of me. Mm-hmm. So I guess to to sum up all of that that I was just saying is that I struggle sometimes caring too much what someone else thinks. Yeah. Uh what's your experience with caring what other people uh
1: think? you know, I actually have a, a roundabout answer. there is a play written by a french philosopher named jean paul sartre uh, who's known as like the existentialist and he he has this play called no exit which is where the line hell is other people comes from and the premise of this play is that there are three people in uh, i think it's supposed to be like a hotel room and there's no mirrors in this room and they slowly discover that they're in hell and that their unique torture here is that each one of them has to wrestle with the identity they have for themselves and the refusal of the other people in that room to recognize their identity. And so there's this, so that, so for example, there's one character who uh, viewed himself as very brave and he dodged the draft and he constructed this narrative, this justification that it was him bravely standing up for pacifist principles. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other people in the room refused to let him have that. And they sort of, Uh, view him instead as this coward who just pussied out. Um, And there's this very, very difficult tension that happens in our lives and happens in our experiences where we have these images of ourselves that sometimes conflict with how other people view us, and that can be uh, literally hell. The best thing is when we're interacting with other people and there's this feedback loop of positivity, of the ways that we view ourselves in a positive light reflects the way other people view us, and it just kind of spirals in a positive direction. You can think of the scenario of like, uh, say you're playing with your dog and you're like pretending to box at the dog, and the fact that the dog isn't cowering and it's acknowledging that you're playing gives this really great feedback loop of like, you are trying to communicate something about yourself authentically, and that is being received correctly, and that's being then sent back to you, and you sort of grow from that. And uh, that's absolutely something I seek out, is people who understand me correctly. And uh, in the areas in which there's a tension between how I view myself and how they view me, those are the best relationships are ones where that's an opportunity to grow, instead of something that can be damaging. Mm-hmm.
0: And... Uh... I, I love that, and actually, I uh, with you mentioning uh, elements of the the play No Exit, mm. I immediately think of like different. Uh, I I feel like Lovecraftian County, I think it was called. Uh, they had an episode that certain parts of that mirror mm. uh, the the setup of that play, and so now I'm like, oh my god, is that was that the inspiration? Honestly, it? it's a very very famous play that's influenced a lot mm. of stuff. So, so I guess for you personally, do you think you struggle with uh, taking into account like what other people think too
1: much, or no, not at all? Yeah, not not too much. Um, like I mean, there's a handful of people in my life who I care a lot about what they th- they've thought about me, mm-hmm. uh, romantic partners, for example, um, and so when there's tension there, that, that can be uh, important to look at, but I think on average day-to-day, I think I'm pretty secure in my identity of who I am, and even if some asshole on the internet you know, accuses me of having some sort of belief that I don't have or something. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really bother me that much.
0: Yeah. I, I would agree with that last bit that like, uh, people on the very peripherals of my life, I don't care what they think of me. Um, but then like, otherwise I think, A lot of my, like, self-help tips, and I had this theory that a lot of people that write self-help books are, like, just recently out of the woods. Like, Mm -hmm. they've just conquered some of the things or thinking that they've conquered it, and then they they can write about it. And so uh, some of my, like, uh, recommendations, which is, like, do as little as you can out of what I call EXO, expectation and obligation, Mm -hmm. that is as much for me as it is for other people yeah because uh, I found every time I switched friend groups it was weird to witness that uh, and not even switch fully but like just discover a new friend group and start to develop a new community mm-hmm. I've grown immensely yep. and uh, I think that like we're such like narrative creatures that as we uh, we pay attention to what role we think we need to play in a setting mm-hmm. and then we have a pressure to fulfill that same role yeah. So, um, but yeah, I I figured you would have an answer similar to that because I remember uh, the other day we were talking and you mentioned that like, uh, if people reach out to you to like check up on you, it doesn't like, it's cool. It's whatever, but it's not a necessity or anything. And it doesn't like, uh, punctuate your,
1: your day or how Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not gonna like super bring me up the way it seems to bring other people up. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that, uh, when the messages are a little bit more specific, i i find them a little more compelling like if it's uh, a specific question about something going on or if it's a specific suggestion or like a, let's go hang out and do this specific thing mm-hmm. it's it's those general ones where it's just like hey how are you doing that sometimes feels like uh it's a hit and a miss like this person's attempting to connect mm-hmm. but uh it just is whatever i'm kind of just shrug it off
0: mm-hmm. yeah. i know people that have struggled with like almost driving them nuts with searching for what they see as the truth mm-hmm. um, do you think you've ever like had uh, an insatiable or tenacious uh, approach for the truth or what I could uh, see as authenticity
1: uh, yeah I care a lot about the truth um, and it is a motivating factor in what drives me to read all the time and explore ideas mm-hmm. uh, I think part of why it's a little bit easier for me is that truth is often interconnected with practicality for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so an obvious example, that is the way I approach ethics, right? Is it's not just what are these abstract principles that I will never actually encounter. It's Mm -hmm. how do I live my life on the day to day? Um, And so, yes, I care a lot about truth. I believe truth, capital T truth, is a thing that can be discovered and can be known, at least in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actively trying to seek it out. I guess that leads
0: into ethics. Yeah. Uh, if you had a same kind of brief synopsis of
1: your ethics, what would it uh, what would it be? So, I I think how I approach virtue is kind of that. Um, sometimes when people sometimes people make a distinction between like morality and ethics, and I don't think that's a very useful distinction. Um, I could dive a little bit deeper into the ethical, like the ethical views that I have and how that applies to things like political philosophy, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the, the explanation I gave of virtue ethics, I think, I think is sufficient to kind of describe how I think about right and wrong actions.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess to, uh, well, get into it, kind of one one elements, I guess what role do, does, or uh, uh, do ethics play in our life? Uh,
1: they are probably the most important thing. Because the ethical question is, like, how should I act and what should I do or not do? Mm -hmm. Um, And so every single time you're faced with a decision, in some sense, that is a matter of ethics. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Ayn Rand basically explains that, like, having ethics is about having a set of values um, and having kind of the right set of values. Mm -hmm. And in order for a living thing at all to exist, it has to have values. Values are things that a living thing seeks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, food, water, sex, movies, whatever um, and ethics is the study of trying to figure out what are the correct values and what things can we disregard and what things should we like not do mm-hmm. um, and so everyone has an ethical system even if it isn't articulated mm-hmm. uh, and I think it's really, really important that if you're going to be living a life and making decisions and interacting with other human beings and their rights and their property and stuff you should be a little conscious about how you're going to approach that
0: yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to say that people that like haven't studied ethics or gotten into it, they have some degree of a, yeah. a framework. They just need to kind of label it and uncover it. Yeah. Uh, and I've had a, a concept where that like... If you, as an individual, is able to incredibly firmly define particular values, mm-hmm. uh, then it helps with decision fatigue. If you're able to build an interconnected yep. network, there where like decisions simply make themselves. Where, where do you think uh, ethics come
1: from? So, uh, ethics come from. So it's so I, this this is an area where I'm gonna I'm gonna say I've had some studies and some reflection on. Because part of me wants to say that moral things are just moral, and they just are. Um, But that's very hard to sell to people. I think there's compelling arguments there, but it's very hard to sell to people. On the other hand, I'm actually, I really like the idea of morals sort of stemming from this deduction around self-interest. They're like, you're a living thing, and there's facts about the fact that you're living. You need Mm -hmm. food, you need water and stuff. Uh, And if you want to really flourish, there's just facts that come out of that and the ethics is the matter of aligning yourself with those facts and behaving in a way that maximizes your flourishing and Mm -hmm. maximizes your life
0: i i like that answer (laughs) uh and so uh i know like a few months ago hell it might have even been a year ago everything kind of blends together lately but um you asked me on uh like some post what uh what my Mm metaethical framework is and I was one of those people that, like, hadn't thought about it. I, yes. I did, like, ethics and mor- morals yep. basically were synonymous. Uh-huh. And so um, I did, like, a day, maybe a day and a half of just, like, checking every theory yep. and all kind of stuff. And I landed on um, a non-theological uh, naturalist. Uh, um, Moral realism? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And even the naturalist, I'm... Fuzzy on now yeah. after thinking about it a little bit more, um, so with that, it, it seems like a lot of them. At, while I was doing the the research uh, yeah. stuff on it, all of them pointed towards very similar like rules mm-hmm. uh, and uh, like imperatives stuff like that. Uh, what like how important do you think it is uh, that we identify where they
1: come from? Okay, okay, so so um, maybe come from isn't the right thing you're trying to get at here founded in yeah 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 like what what is maybe more importantly is what the hell is an ethical claim mm-hmm. you know what the hell does that even mean what does it mean to say something is good mm-hmm. or bad maybe that's more what you're trying to get at um, yeah yeah and so meta let me let me offer as quickly as I can a brief understanding of what meta is and why it matters because um, anyone who's serious about constructing an ethical worldview and advocating for it, should study metaethics. Because metaethics deals with the linguistics of ethics. It deals with the epistemology. How do we even know these things? Um, and it deals with just sort of the, uh, uh, it, it then leads to what's referred to as normative ethics, which is like the actual ethical systems. So like virtue ethics versus like utilitarianism, that's normative ethics. Um, Metaethics is intended to be this meta-analysis of it, and asking these more focus on the linguistical element. Um, and so, so one way to think about it is, if you look at a moral statement, it's structured like uh, killing babies is wrong. Um, it's structured like a proposition. And most sentences we speak are propositions. That was a proposition. This was a proposition. You know, a proposition, a proposition is structured in a way that it is something that can be true or false. Potentially, it could always be false, it could always be true, that's a whole separate question about how do we discover that, but moral statements are structured like that. Mm-hmm. And so the first debate in metaethics is, is that a valid linguistical understanding of moral statements to treat them that way, or should we treat them a different way? Um, are moral statements more like, like cheering? So like when I say, uh, boo, Red Sox, that's not a proposition. I am still, like, expressing things like a preference and stuff. Hmm. Um, and so maybe some philosophers would say, well, moral statements are close to that. When I say murder is wrong, I'm really saying boo, murder. One obvious problem with that is that it's not how this sense is structured. I like the uh, way you put that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, And what we're doing here is induction, right? We're not doing deduction. You're not going to go through metaethics and be like, here's the... 1 plus 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals whatever Mm -hmm. and reach your conclusion that's easy to verify. We're doing induction, meaning that we're uh, engaging with evidence that's stronger or weaker, as opposed to like irrefutable. Mm -hmm. And if I look at the evidence, it seems to me that moral statements are shaped like a proposition, and so it's okay to treat them that way. Mm -hmm. It's okay to say that killing babies is wrong is a sentence that could be true or false. Now, some people will say it is false, and that The opposite is also false too, and that all moral claims are false. And that's what's referred to as error theory, Mm -hmm. this idea that uh, when I'm making a moral statement, regardless if it's theft is wrong or theft is right, that all moral statements are errors, they're an incorrect use of our language, it's just this weird thing that happened with the way language is developed. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think that's not very compelling, just because historically, uh, language just doesn't really work like that. It's very rare to have a thing that humans are always wrong about whenever they say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because there's things like disagreement doesn't necessarily mean that it's always wrong. So, error theory is a part of relativism. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it can be. It can be. Um, these categories tend to kind of bleed into each other a little bit, but the basic idea is that error theory believes that moral statements are propositions. But all, but all the propositions in moral statements are always false, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. So a relative, like a, like a subjectivist theory or a relative theory is gonna say that moral statements are propositions, but the truthness and falseness of those statements is dependent on something relative or subjective. Uh, subjective usually means dependent on the subject. Mm. Um, so, we, so like a relativist or, or subjectivist might say, this is wrong to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong to you. The contrast to that is an objective theory. Objective here meaning in the object. Um, What is often more, usually more referred to as moral realism, which is sort of what we were talking about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that when we have moral statements like killing is wrong, the truthness and falseness is dependent on some sort of objective fact of reality and not dependent on the person who's speaking it. It's not dependent on the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you described earlier was you talked about natural moral realism that was non-theological, mm-hmm. which, is this, which, if I understand correctly, is this position that says moral statements are propositions. These propositions can be true or false. The truthness and falseness is objectively determined. But it, but it doesn't come from a god, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very, very compelling. The natural part of it usually implies that that goodness can be equal to some sort of natural property, uh, perhaps happiness, uh, you know, perhaps utility or something. Mm-hmm. In contrast to that, there is non-natural moral realism uh, that can mean a couple different things, but usually it means that the moral thing like goodness and badness isn't some sort of natural property it's something immaterial something abstract it Mm -hmm. still exists um but it's not it can't be simply defined as happiness or it can't be simply defined as utility i think that when you really seriously investigate the evidence and history of moral thought the only two compelling theories are either natural moralism or non-natural moralism i think that's where the real interesting debates are um a lot of people find subjectivism very compelling. Mm. I don't. Um, we can get into maybe the arguments there, but uh, it's very squishy. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's also if you if you ask someone why do they believe that, first they can very rarely give an answer. Mm. But if they do give an answer, it's usually something like, uh, "Well, people disagree." Mm-hmm. Um, in which case you can push back and say well people disagree about a lot of things You know, people disagree about the shape of the earth that doesn't mean there isn't a shape of the earth mm-hmm. um, that doesn't mean the shape of the earth is subjective in the sense that moral philosophers use it mm-hmm. um, or they'll say like well different countries have different theories it's kind of just another version of the same argument uh, it, it's very hard to pinpoint a strong argument in favor of subjective theories mm-hmm. uh, and it's. I think it's a little bit easier to pinpoint arguments in favor of moral realism, and this a belief in sort of objective, uh, including just the fact that that's how human language has operated with moral thoughts, basically forever.
0: Yeah. yeah. I do too, uh, to get to that that collapse point. And then I recall um, at one point, I... So I hate going through uh, checkout lanes, and it yeah. was like, hey, how you doing? Good, you? Nice. Uh, and then go on the day. And so I... I've been, uh, that's kind of why I asked you that question earlier about like your uh, relationship with authenticity. And so I try to like dig up any bit of authenticity in whatever situation. And so I remember uh, going through a checkout line at I think it was Natural Grocers, and I uh, dude was like, "Hey, how's your day?" I'm like, "Good. Uh, just uh, did like a ton of studying on like meta-ethical frameworks, and I landed on non-theological, uh, naturalistic approach to moral realism." Mm-hmm. And he was like, uh, "Like, oh, that's cool." <laughs> and uh, what about is odd? And I was like, "Huh." And uh, and he was like, oh yeah, it's like a like a critique of it. And the person behind me was like, hey, come on, come on. And so I was like, oh well, that's cool. And then I like rushed home. I'm like, yeah. what the fuck is odd? And I I think it was Hume uh, that was getting into like if you witness like facts mm-hmm. that is is and you're you're exactly right with uh, your summary of uh, uh, the naturalistic approach, which yep. is that any kind of moral claim can be uh, uh, like boiled down into. Uh, non-moral but natural elements and uh, so I uh, like I agree that if you see something that is Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have the context it's almost impossible to know the context of what to ought so it's uh, almost like a non sequitur there Mm And so, uh, that has got me a little fuzzy, but at the same time, I mean, I got other stuff to do and I yeah. am not in a field where I study ethics. So I was like, eh, fuck it. And so that's why I really appreciate this conversation. Mm-hmm. If, uh, if memory serves, you mentioned that you were, um, you use your instincts or something.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, within non-natural moral realism, there is this very pop growing popular position called intuitionism. um, and. And, and uh, intuitionism can be compatible compatible with virtue ethics, as I mentioned before, but uh, not necessarily all of it, um, and very rarely are intuitionists also virtue ethics. Um, and so this is where, if there's anywhere that there's an interesting tension that I'm still kind of trying to figure some things out, it's this. Mm-hmm. Um, intuitionism is a meta- medical ethical theory that, uh, as mentioned, it's moral realism, right? So there's moral statements are propositions. The propositions can be true or false. The truth falseness is an objective matter. Um, It's non-natural, meaning that goodness and badness doesn't come from, you know, some sort of natural property. Uh, But an important element of intuitionism is this epistemological claim. It's this question of how do we know moral facts? Um, And the intuitionist says that we can use intuition. And so intuition is something that Uh, for the layman person and even in philosophy it's sometimes hard to pinpoint because sometimes it just feels like this like weird mystical thing or it just feels like emotional preferences um, and it's sometimes a little hard to pinpoint. The way intuitionists approach it is they see it as uh, this form of cognitive reasoning that's immediate. It's an impression is one way to put it. Hmm. Um, And so we have impressions of things all the time. We have impressions about like that water bottle's in front of you. Um, your impressions can be wrong. You should investigate your impressions and figure out if they're right or wrong. Mm. But it's okay for you to see that water bottle and be like, yeah, that's there. It's okay for you to start there as a starting point. Mm. You could be wrong and you should investigate it but, it, but it's totally reasonable for you to have an intuition and trusted intuition. Um, and we, we use intuition to deal with math a lot. So uh, if I asked you to explain why does one plus one equal two, you would probably struggle, um, not because it isn't obvious that it, one plus one equals two, but because, like, how would you explain that to someone, you know? How do you explain the concept of addition uh, and the idea that, that numbers can be added together to equal this thing? In fact, there are pretty serious people who, when talking about philosophy, will even reject the idea that we can even prove that 1 plus 1 equals 2 or prove that A is A and things like that. Um, so, but the intuitionist says, look, you're looking at it. It's obviously true. That fact that it's obviously true is actually a decent starting point. Mm. And now you have to go and try to disprove that or something. Or someone has to disprove it to you if they want to disagree. You have this impression of its truthness, and you're allowed to accept that. And so intuitionists then apply that to moral theory. We say, uh, you most likely have an impression that killing babies for sexual pleasure is an immoral thing. Mm -hmm. And it's not just disgust that you're feeling when you hear that. Disgust is a very specific emotion that you can identify and you can relate to things. There's something rational going on. There's something going on in your brain that's not just your emotions. And that's the impression. That's the intuition. Mm -hmm. And so it's okay to start with intuitions. We don't all agree on intuitions, um, but it's okay to start with them and use that as a justification for a moral belief. And then you should do things like are your intuitions compatible with the other intuitions? Are they consistent? Are there any strong arguments against it? You can change your mind, but it's okay to start with intuitionists. And so intuitionists use that as the epistemological model and usually believe that goodness and badness can't simply define, be defined as a natural property. It just sort of is. It's, just, it's this abstract truth that we know through our intuition and our impressions.
0: Mm-hmm. And with... So you mentioned killing babies for yep. sexual pleasure I mean that's obviously wrong but yeah. let's challenge some other things um, what about uh, like killing babies uh, when there's a drought and for food so I guess um, I guess what I'm asking is uh, like culture will shape an individual's hmm. intuition yeah. Uh, so would the, the like culturally susceptible intuitions be not accounted for? And instead it's like the very root intuitions that are almost shared amongst any human.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You want to, when you're engaging in intuition, you want to cut out as much fluff as possible. Take away your biases, take away, uh, your, even your emotional reactions sometimes and try to get it as authentically, uh, you try to get as authentic, clean impression as you can. Um, that's not always easy to do. Um, and again, like people have different intuitions, you can be wrong about an intuition. Uh, and there's, and to be clear, uh, intuitionism because it's a meta-ethical theory and not a normative theory, you can be an intuitionist. You can have five intuitions in a room, and they can all disagree about a moral argument. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just this method of approaching ethics on the foundation, and then you go to the next step of like normative theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think it's uh, so new? So intuitionism isn't necessarily new. It's just becoming increasingly popular because uh, there haven't been... Uh, so so ideas often come in sort of fashion. Um, and in the modern era, after we eliminated God as a possibility, people really struggled with the idea of there still being objective truth and objective morality. Uh, and slowly, especially in the late... 20th century, um, subjectivist ideas, postmodernism, nihilistic ideas tend to become more and more popular. Mm. Uh, and so I, so I guess that's kind of what you're getting at. I think that intuitionism is sometimes hard for people to understand because I usually start with the assumption of, oh, ethics are just personal opinion. And so getting them to then, well, not only are ethics an objective matter, but we have this special cognitive function that lets us in, have insights to that, mm. uh, can be kind of an uphill battle if they're not already super interested in philosophy. Yeah.
0: I've thought that uh, about linguistics before that like as cavemen we had all of these Mm -hmm. possibly all intuition uh, and struggled with defining it and as we like conceptually uh, uh, what I call cognitive bureaucracy yep. we build on top of it yep. that's what allows us to be uh, way smarter than biologically nearly identical individuals like 100,000 years ago yep. and so um, I'm curious if we because we're far from the, the peak I'm yep. sure we will uh, through different branches of linguistics be able to uh, even finer tune yep. uh, our definition but um I guess so to play with that a little bit uh I know you are also to use just a real quick word which mm-hmm. I know we're gonna dig up the nuance but uh, ANCAP yeah. anarcho-capitalist
1: yeah yeah there's a lot of nuance here but definitely anarchist uh in favor of things like free markets yeah mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. so you uh founded on the idea that everything needs to be um uh, like voluntary uh voluntary like yep. people uh, uh like opt in to mm-hmm. systems. Um, what do you? Uh, because I've played with this idea a bit. Like, what do you think of like any sort of law or anything to, like, if you saw a baby in the hot sun, mm-hmm. living baby, uh, do you think there should be any sort of a like requirement that you report?
1: Oh, uh, so uh, there's a couple different answers here. Um, yeah, so, yes, I do believe everything should be voluntary. By that, I mean that we should respect consent, that consent should be, like, the highest moral principle. Um, and if you're getting into virtue ethics, that's a branch of justice is the virtue you're trying to embody there. Um, in fact, Ayn Rand, uh, who a lot of my moral ideas are, are very in line with, wrote an essay called uh, The Ethics of Emergencies that deals with the scenario of, like, the man drowning the lake. Um, if we are authentic and honest in our values and the and we act with integrity meaning aligning our values with our actions Um, it is obvious to me that human life is a valuable thing and that assuming the cost is not absurdly high you should go out of your way to help people Mm -hmm. Um, and that includes a baby that's struggling or a man drowning now the question you're getting at though is about consent Um, and i think fortunately uh things people like babies have slightly different rules around consent it's okay to pull a baby from the hot road or pull a baby from getting hit from a car mm-hmm. uh babies by their nature are put into like a guardianship you know their families um you still have to respect their autonomy you can't beat up the baby but <clears throat> it's okay to grab the baby off the hot road or whatever
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: and also i'm
0: guessing that uh if i understand correctly there's kind of like two parallel processes uh at least currently mm-hmm. like in today's society there's like a legal justice system yep. and then there's also like very strong cultural norms and taboos and stuff like sure, that yeah. so if uh if i'm identifying where you stand mm-hmm. correctly there would
1: not be a legal oh uh, uh, so <clears throat> legal is a complicated word here um cuz you can have laws, quote-unquote, in an anarchist setting. You can have courts. You can have rules for communities. If by legal you mean state, then obviously not, because I reject the state. But I, don't, I, but I guess the only point I'm trying to make here is, is I think you can divorce law from government.
0: That's yeah. a great distinction, and I do—I appreciate that. Yeah. It's like you could almost—I yeah, could see a dystopian or utopian thing calling it policy. Yeah. Like, that's against policy. Yeah. But, um, so, like, do you think that it should be against, like, policy? Like, do you think that should be codified, or do you think, like, the punishment for not uh, oh, rescuing uh, a baby should just be social fallout?
1: Yeah, just—yeah, uh, I, d- I don't think, like—like, like, I don't think you should use violence against someone— just because they didn't save a baby, I don't think you should take money from them, or beat them up, or put them in a cage. Mm-hmm. If that more directly answers
0: yeah, what you're saying, that yeah. does. And then I guess uh, at what point does consent like start to uh, be placed onto that
1: individual? Uh, that's so that's hard to say. I, I'm not gonna. I don't think there's gonna be a clear answer. And in fact, I might even make the point that uh, where 18 is a nice age and a nice. Um, basic rule of thumb and i think i prefer to live in a society where that's a rule of thumb i think realistically like consent uh so consent stems from personal autonomy and i think it's fair to say that different people develop personal autonomy at different points Mm -hmm. um and that perhaps it is the case there are some people who are in their 20s but still technically children you know Mm -hmm. uh but i'm i think like 18 is a really good rule of thumb and one that most societies should adopt their roles. And so also not
0: even just, uh, uh, and I know you didn't mean like sexually, uh, just sexually, but um, I guess like over the direction in life. So I guess uh, how would that play with parents?
1: Yeah. So I think the ethics of parenting is really important because um, there's one argument to be had that uh, parents kind of forced you into this existence. And so they kind of have an obligation to provide for you it's okay to have obligations in, like, libertarian society or in, like, my moral systems are presenting. Like, I have an obligation to fulfill my contracts. Um, so you can maybe make the claim that, like, giving birth to a child is a sort of contract. Um, mm-hmm. And that implies obligations. Certainly, the parent relationship should not be about power, but about guardianship. It's about, like, protecting and facilitating, not about, like, the child isn't your slave or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it is very important to be I think we should be skeptical and critique all power structures and all hierarchies. Um, and parenting is no exception. We should be very careful about parenting. It, it's a, a very serious task, and it's something that can go wrong. And you have a moral obligation to do it as right as you possibly can.
0: I uh, Yeah, yeah, definitely. So in that case, um, basically... Uh, it's like protect what if you like want your kid to develop in a way that is because there's the whole argument of like prefrontal cortex yeah. like sometimes kids want just stupid shit um, what about like uh, what extreme or to what point can a parent force a kid to do something
1: hmm. uh, I think very rarely um, so, so it's one thing to like like put your kid to bed you know and like force you to do that and another thing to like force your kid to labor Mm -hmm. um and so i'm very skeptical of forcing kids to labor unless uh it's clearly sort of part of their responsibility like chores they live in this environment it's an element of their responsibility i think it's okay to incentivize chores Mm -hmm. maybe through like an allowance or something Mm -hmm. uh i'm I'm not going to say that i have like the development psychology answer here mm. um, i'm just loosely theorizing based off of ethics um, if i was a parent i think what i would try to do is make a strong distinction between what's mine what's theirs and what's ours and so if my child goes and buys a playstation i don't think i ever have the right to take that playstation away from them to say like you can't play your playstation mm-hmm. if i buy them a PlayStation and it's technically mine, and I'm just letting them use it, I have every right to say, no, you can't do this, and I may uh, weaponize that as a parent, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, On the other hand, some things are ours, like the kitchen, for example. I bought it, but we're living in it together, and we're, like, living in this environment. And so I think they have some sort of uh, responsibility there to, like, clean the kitchen or something like that. Uh, But I don't think you can, you know, uh, force your kid to go get a job super early on or something.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and I've thought about that, too, is, like, there's, like, a baseline where, mm-hmm. like, I'll be a loving parent and help to develop my child. Yeah. And then I will almost get them stuff to reward them, yeah. but also, and who knows, maybe it makes me an asshole, mm-hmm. but, like, use it to, uh, or as leverage. And yeah. be like, oh, you can't have that now, or some extent of, like, grounding.
1: Yeah, I, I think uh, what's really important, though, is that they do at least have some sort of sense of ownership over their life. And like, and so if they get a job and go buy something, it's theirs. And I think it's really important to respect that, because mm-hmm. um, they sh- should understand that if they want more autonomy, they need to go get it. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's something that they can achieve, and I will respect it.
0: Yeah, you know. that's a great thing to respect and also reinforce. Yes, yes. I was. Uh... I was talking to someone that they're struggling teaching their kid how to handle money Mm -hmm. and, like, the concept of money. They're a bit spoiled. Yeah. And so I was like, uh, do a, like, almost don't pay for certain things, but uh, give them an allowance uh, when they do, like, appropriate things. And, uh, like, earn the allowance and then let them what they desire, like, buy for it. So I think... uh, Uh, I'm excited for as I uh, approach some level of parenthood where Mm -hmm. I can like uh, well hell I could learn it now or read the books now are you telling me you're pregnant Kenton (laughs) yep nice (laughs) on here wow wow (sighs) but um, yeah yeah, no I think uh, I'm fascinated with that psychology because there's on certain levels there's overlap between that and like employee psychology Mm -hmm. Uh, just incentives at the end of the day yeah but yeah So to get into more of your uh, anarchistic approach, I know I've talked to Jim and he's, uh, what's it called? No harm or something? Uh, Philosophy that's like Uh, part of the core of it. Like
1: the non-aggression principle? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so uh, for you, I guess, like one thing I've always been kind of somewhat curious about that Mm -hmm. is like, when is it appropriate to use force to separate like a deviant individual from society?
1: Uh, So it's hard to say. I consider myself a prison abolitionist in the sense that I don't think prisons should exist. But putting someone in a cage isn't the same thing as a prison per se. Prisons are institutional things. They're large scale structures that have relationships to states and things. Um, I also have a philosophical uh, disdain for punishment as a concept. Um, beca- because if, if I respect humans to have certain rights, Um, Punishments sometimes can violate those rights. Like throwing someone in a cage for smoking pot Mm -hmm. uh, is problematic. I think that, however, sometimes putting someone in a cage or throwing them in a community is actually an act of self-defense, which you have every right to do. And so if I were to say, when is it okay to put someone in a cage or when is it okay to kick them out of the community? uh, My standard, and I think there's some nuance to be had here, and I'm sure other anarchists would disagree, repeat... Violent or sexual offenses, where it's obvious that they have intent to continue. Um, and so someone kills someone once, this is a terrible thing, and we should find a way to engage restitution and make sure the victims, of, like the, the family and stuff are uh, given money or something. and we should do what we can as a community to come together and help this murderer grow and develop and get the psychological help they need. But uh, I wouldn't say you can throw a murderer in a cage for one murder. Mm-hmm. At least not long term. Maybe you can for a day just to figure out what the hell's going on. But like, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Everyone gets one murder?
1: Yeah, yeah everyone yeah. gets one murder.
0: Nice. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. pull out the card and you <laughs> <laughs> you punch it?
1: Yeah, because here's the thing. Um, uh, someone might listen to that and be like, well, that's fucking limp-wristed. And that's like bullshit. Like, you're creating this dangerous society. But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that... Being morally good and being consistent with our principles means respecting the rights of people we don't like mm. and the people who maybe even are dangerous, uh, which is why maybe I'm skeptical of, like, like punching a Nazi or something. Mm. Uh, there's some nuance to be had here, but uh, it's just if you want to live in a world where we have human rights, we have to apply those to everyone, even the bad people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate that and I want to uh, untangle the punching Nazi thing yeah. momentarily but yeah I think like um, going back to the ethics thing I think the, the point that they serve is they facilitate both personal development and societal cohesion Yeah, and so uh, yeah I definitely think that people especially like younger people going back to like kids being kind of idiots uh-huh. sometimes um, people make Horrible choices and one sadly like just I want to I can hear people objecting to parts of this or like yep. projecting onto it Like sexual assault uh, in like today's society. I think is uh, uh, It does need to be handled yep. and then also uh, like systemically certain societal elements allow it to happen like yeah, at yeah. colleges or something so outside of that kids do stupid things yep. depending on how we choose to label them it both ruins their life, yep. but also it detracts from their like, possible output in society. Yep. And so that's one of my biggest like, things with, uh, with the jail system is I was doing almost like a thought experiment yep. where I was thinking about prison and like what, how would we like, start to abolish the prison system? Mm-hmm. And then with that, it would almost at this point... I, I am for abolishing prison yeah, system, yeah. but I, there would be some fallout. Oh, sure. of having yeah. like a lot of these people that have had all of their support network destroyed yeah. and so I could see people that argue against that just purely on that notion that like we've we basically fucked up these people yeah. to then have them back in society would be detrimental for like a growing pain mm-hmm. uh, I agree with the like let people have, have one thing and uh, multiple repeat offenders uh, they identify as like almost like a glitch in the system yeah. like they're going to continue mm-hmm. messing up And we'll pause right there for a second just to add a bit of clarity. Uh, So I would at some point in the near future love to discuss it with Gabe and also get some people that have like studied law and figure out kind of what an ideal system, justice system would look like. But uh, to kind of clarify some of the way uh, or some of the approaches I was projecting or uh, presenting rather in the uh, the podcast, uh, basically... Uh, Almost kind of like how insurance is, Uh, most insurance covers things that are sudden, accidental, so uh, in this hypothetical or possible option for handling any kind of crime, uh, if a crime is committed and it's like sudden and not premeditated, then that's where it goes into kind of the softer route of getting handled, that being like reparations, uh, some sort of like uh, rehabilitation, well uh, definitely rehabilitation uh, in the form of forced therapy, depending on what happens. And then, uh, kind of, reparations going directly to said family or uh, some sort of foundation that helps prevent uh, similar crimes from happening in the future, that being through education or uh, therapy, any number of other routes. But uh, then, if there's something that's uh, like someone put a lot of planning into, like stalked someone home and committed an assault or uh, like plan to murder a bunch of people, or if something happens repeatedly, even like smaller crimes. So you have someone that constantly is uh, engaged in some form of robbery, and no one died necessarily. Uh, But in that case, that's when it gets serious. There's a forced removal of that uh, element, that uh, deviant, if you may, uh, from society. And uh, that goes back into that kind of like forced therapy. And forced therapy, I mean like that could also be uh, like a section of a podcast all on its own. Basically, I just mean like uh, you can take therapy classes and you need to show that you're identifying and uh, internalizing elements of the the therapy uh, in order to cut down your sentence. Uh, and then also layered on to the the softer stuff, that being like uh, labor to uh, or funds producing a, a reparation for family or industry that uh, or foundation that prevents that from happening in the future, and then basically just uh, a long term sentence time that then involves uh, someone almost kind of like a psychological interview, someone just like talks to someone and figures out. Does this person need to continue to be held separate from society? Kind of what's going on. Also, uh, it would be similar to like the smaller offenses. Uh, the They would have that kind of psychological interview just to see, hey, is this going to happen again? What's, what's the situation? So just wanted to clarify, I'm not saying that uh, I don't think anyone would think I meant this, but I mean people have misunderstood weirder things. But, yeah, I'm not saying that uh, you commit a crime, you're free to go for the first one, and then from there you have to pay the consequences. No, just uh, like the, at least in this framework, the thing that is trying to be preserved is to minimize the loss of labor. Uh, And I know that sounds a bit uh, com-communistic vibes or anything like that, But uh, basically, that's the biggest thing, or, well, one of the bigger issues that I see with our uh, current, uh, uh, present-day justice system, uh, prison industry deal is that it uh, takes people out of the workforce and alienates them and then also sometimes radicalizes them and then helps uh, build this narrative of us versus them. And then when they come out, they both have, like, legally they are kept from certain places to live or certain uh, jobs and then also the social stigma prevents them from other types of relationships jobs or places to live and so uh, this would try to preserve that at most costs stating that like how how is this how is it going to balance the social harmony along with uh, like preventing this from eroding Uh, any kind of uh, faith in the system, and then also facilitating this person can still work, they can still pay, whatever, not just trying to basically milk families for everything they're worth and turn them into like slave labor, which I will have a full-length critique on the prison system, possibly in the future. I mean, smarter people than I have knocked it out in the past. But I think I have rambled long enough. So back to our regularly scheduled program. Well, I know you mentioned that you were uh, thinking a bit uh, about uh, identity. Uh, did you have any thoughts that uh, you wanted to share? So,
1: so uh, there's maybe a lot here because we were talking a bit about like like mirrors and stuff and like reflect our reflections on other people. Um, so I could go a couple of directions there's this deep philosophical stuff and then we can also talk about like branding and like how to build an online identity and things like that Mm -hmm. Uh, one one thing that that does immediately strike me is there is this German nihilist anarchist philosopher uh, who uh, was writing back when Marx was writing so that's kind of the time frame his name is Max Stirner Uh, I forget his actual name but that was his his pen name Uh, which by the way can potentially be a bilingual pung, because he's German and so Sterner means forehead. Mm-hmm. Max maybe means big. Maybe his name is Ma- Big Forehead. I mm-hmm. don't know. Just saying. Uh, potentially. <laughs> it just didn't get translated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have no clue wh- why he would choose that. But um, <clears throat> And there's a, there's a lot I don't like about Max Sterner, but there's a lot I like. And one thing I like is that he kind of tries to tackle this idea of who is me? What am I? Um, we are all together. Uh, and he, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, uh, you could see this almost as like a deconstruction. So, so we say things like, I need to go to work because I am a McDonald's employee. Or I need to buy my wife flowers because I am a husband. And from Sterner, there's an error in that. You're not actually a McDonald's employee. You're not actually a husband. You're you these are external things these are labels that are put on you by society uh but there's only really you and even even your name kenton can't really accurately identify who the hell you are right and so what he suggests is that when you're thinking about your reasoning for doing something don't start with i'm this thing that society says start with who am i what do i want authentically as deeply as possible um, as you can see, there's some overlap with some of the other things, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Sterner's, obviously, I mentioned a little bit more nihilistic in this, and there isn't, like, a clear set of ethics or something. Um, but but that, that's one area that worth thinking about. Uh, are you you in some abstract way that's very difficult to define? Or are you a mother or are you a McDonald's worker or something? And I think more accurately, you are you uh, in this way that is almost impossible to fully articulate. And maybe there's some beauty to there and the uniqueness of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one thought that has crossed my mind when it comes to identity and thinking about who the hell we are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, um... So I think one I want to check out Max Steiner. Max Stirner? Stirner. Stirner. I will send you some links. Uh, oh. It's very
1: complicated, but very wonderful.
0: Um, so with uh, I'm fascinated with just narratives in general yep. and how that's how we like interact with reality. Yep. Uh, we interact with narratives, and those are also a degree of inertia for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We are uh, embodying a narrative, and so uh, there's this. Uh, this book i can't remember the guy who wrote it uh one I, I admire and i appreciate your ability to be like this guy wrote this yeah. book i'm like i read this one book nice. i can describe the yeah. cover yeah yeah uh but uh it's called Nonviolent communication okay and uh, there's a part in that that he's talking about uh like uh talking to a teacher and she's like i hate writing um because or no i hate grading my students mm-hmm. uh but i have to i have to grade my mm-hmm. students and uh So, uh, because that's like company policy or school policy. And so he said that that whole thing, reframe it with, I want to grade my students because, and then finish it. And so she was like, I want to grade the students because I want to keep my job. Yeah. And uh, she's like, I don't, I don't like saying it that way. <laughs> and so uh, that, is, that was a beautiful like, realization of that she may not be, uh, possibly she wants yeah. to teach, but not in that setting. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of vaguely related, and we'll get back to identity, but uh, it's, I think that forces her to take responsibility for her actions yep. and what she's doing and uh, place it onto herself instead of her identity as like a teacher. Yep. And uh, that's one of the benefits of uh, like calming down in a situation, breathing and acting instead of reacting is one, I think we make better decisions, calculated decisions when we act, but it also helps with the way we uh, correct ourselves because oftentimes if we're reactional and we mess up uh, the blame, as we kind of trace that that string of blame, uh, it's easier to place it on whatever was making us react. And so then it calls for less action to change. Yep. And so uh, I heard this great, uh, well, actually, I, I morphed it into a, a better saying, uh, but I, it was like a long paragraph in a book. But mm-hmm. basically, bad things in the world don't happen because bad people increase. It happens because uh, responsible people, the number of responsible people, decrease. Yep. And so it goes into like the Nuremberg trials where like all the Nazis were like, I was following orders, mm-hmm. something like that. And that leads into, like, a weird element of group dynamic of, like, uh, group polarization and uh, and uh, uh, radicalization, stuff like that. Yep. But um, I think that identity is incredibly important to pay attention to because, one, it leads to, going back to earlier, uh, a very sustainable version of intrinsic motivation. Yep. And I think an element of that is pride and a lot of like um, uh, CBT therapists, cognitive behavioral therapists, and also this really interesting field of uh, behavioral therapy that I'm looking into, which is dialectical behavioral therapy, Uh which is like basically balancing acceptance with growth and like to what extent do you need to move forward. And uh, so with... Uh, to rewind back to the the pride comment, I think uh, pride is incredibly important for an individual to motivate them, but also for like society and like therapists uh, to have any impact on uh, inducing change. And I've definitely talked to people that uh, are lacking pride and they acknowledge that they're a huge piece of shit. And then they don't, like it, it's hard to, uh, course them or uh, or motivate them to change yep. uh, outside of that yep. but um yeah so you uh was that the extent max uh, sterner the extent of the philosophical approach to
1: identity so max sterner's work is a little bit more complicated than that uh much of his work is about critiquing narratives in general uh it's important to understand the context here um Stirner, by virtue of hanging out with people like like Marx, he was a student of Hegel. And Hegel's work is what's called uh, often referred to as Dialectics. Um, and it's this idea of thinking about a progress of history through this sort of tension of ideas that are perceived as opposites, but in many ways overlap in important ways. Um, and so maybe you can see like like the evolution of democracies coming between this tension of uh, feudal societies engaging the sort of anarchistic tens- tensions of of the peasant class and that kind of battles out maybe literally but maybe just sort of in the, the ideas how they clash leading to something like democracy and it happens through a series of a uh, ton of overcorrections yes yes so sterner hated this idea mm-hmm. he thought it was very stupid uh, and so his work is about critiquing dialectics and critiquing these narratives that we try to draw about history and humanity. Because if, under any real serious scrutination, it's never that simple. Um, and for Sterner, many of these things, uh, dialectics often, these sort of historical progressions often assume that there's some kind of grand arching end goal that it's reaching towards, human freedom or something. And so Sterner cool. rejects these. These are abstracts, that do not have any meaning, that are just as pointless as believing in God. So Sterner doesn't believe in morality. He doesn't believe in personal responsibility in the sense of there being some sort of obligation. He doesn't believe in governments. He doesn't believe in laws. He doesn't believe in these sorts of things. Uh, and he even openly said in one of his writings that even if his ideas led to a deeply terrible, chaotic society with people murdering each other in the street, he does not care. Um, Because he thinks what he's saying is accurate as a critique of of all these sort of concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so as much as I think there's a lot of interesting sort of inspiring personal philosophy stuff to Adam Stirner about asserting yourself authentically and transcending these arbitrary obligations that you've been presented with from tradition or governments and critiquing these sort of power structures and the ideas behind them. I think uh, I wouldn't take it as far as Stirner does. And I think he's incorrect. I think that there are some obligations out there, uh-huh. even if he would like to reject them. Did Hitler use any of his writing? Max? Uh, no, no. Um, and in fact, Stirner would be very actively anti-Hitler, right? Because Hitler is justifying his work through this sort of vision of the ideal human. Uh, which Stirner would think is nonsense. And the whole narrative of an ideal. Yeah, you... yeah, yeah. yeah. So Stirner is kind of a proto-postmodernist. So before postmodernism is a thing. He gets rid of narratives. No more narratives, yeah. So the bad version of his
0: philosophy that he could foresee is like complete crazy anarchy or something like that? Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and so he was an anarchist. Um, and his ideas have since influenced anarchists. And in fact, actually, uh, there's a really good example of how his ideas can be kind of dangerous on a personal level. In France... Uh, the turn of the 20th century, there was these anarchists that were referred to as the illegalists Mm -hmm. um, whose basic idea was that fuck laws, fuck morality, we're just going to do crime. Uh, Be gay and do crime. That was their philosophy. Mm -hmm. And they were heavily influenced by Max Stirner explicitly. Um, And as you can imagine, most of them died young and of bullet holes. Mm. Uh, And so I agree with fuck the law Fuck arbitrary obligations. Mm. I agree with pursue your self-interest and your growth and seek out the things that you want. Um, the trouble of tension of how I think about Sterner and his work is that uh, it's because it's nihilistic, it's ultimately self-destructive. And ironically, therefore, not actually in your self-interest. Mm.
0: Okay. Exactly. So um, I I heard this thing, and I need to get into it. Uh, basically, this uh, this guy started talking about how... Uh, different like patterns found throughout the universe are somewhat reminiscent of uh like neural nets Mm -hmm. and like the similar laws of like survival of the fittest and so uh like virtual particles something like that uh don't propagate and they don't even exist they're not stable because they are uh basically like physical uh having physical properties that are uh fallacies Mm -hmm. and so um, atoms and constituent particles uh, this gentleman saying is that uh, they are basically the universe playing uh, eons of uh, neural nets to devise like a very stable reality it's a weird theory and so I want to look into it Mm -hmm. but it kind of reminds me of philosophies like one of the prerequisites for a good philosophy Mm -hmm. is that it needs to be in my opinion uh, is that it needs to be um, scalable. Yep. That yep. more and more people need to get it. Otherwise, it'll just immediately die out. Yep. I uh, talked to someone that was talking about, like, they're trying to rationalize, like, the importance or the uh, justification of suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, I mean, you are here making this debate yeah. <laughs> after a long line of people that did not get Yeah, a little suicide. self-refuting, right? Yeah. 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 And um, so I... Uh, yeah, I, I think it's narratives are, I think they're important and I think they're good to have. So I don't agree with Max. Um, and, but I think that when we're not mindful of it and that's like one of the keys in most things of like living your life is being deeply mindful of why you do something. There's this interesting study, uh, that if you feel a certain way, uh, and you're not mindful of the reason for it, you attribute it to, like what you are experiencing purely, like Mm -hmm. uh, a direct result of what you're interacting with. Uh, To give an example of this, uh, if you have the option to schedule interviews, try to schedule them for a warm, sunny day Mm -hmm. because sunlight uh, triggers more release of serotonin. And in your interviewer, they'll feel happy and attribute it to you because you're engaging with them. And so if the moment that narratives become detrimental and harmful is when you don't know you're in one. And so for instance, like I 100% uh, support BLM movement, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've seen through media lately uh, and uh, and when I say media, I'm not talking about uh, kind of news reporting, but also like in uh, like Hollywood or yep. like Netflix shows, mm-hmm. uh, people capitalizing off of uh, a BLM narrative, yep. and basically like it's it's interesting to see that certain elements of raw capitalism. There's a strong level of um, irreverence mm-hmm. that everything can be sold, even suffering. So. Amen.
1: Amen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a couple different points there, but um, I, I definitely agree that narratives can be necessary but also can be extremely dangerous. And I think it is really unfortunate when people get lost in the sauce of political narratives because, um, like, uh, caring about your community and caring about what's going on with other people and caring about what's going on in the world matters. Um, but you actually only have so much control. And if you shifted your focus a little bit more on how do you grow as a person and and how do you do less harm in the world, you'll actually have a much bigger impact than if you spend your time going to protests and ignoring your health to do so or something. In fact, a lot of people get very obsessed with these narratives that they have around capitalism is evil or even the state is evil or the white man is evil or something. Mm. Uh, And that bleeds into their personal relationships and keeps them from pursuing jobs that they would probably be good at and just destroys them slowly. And this is one of the reasons why I'm really attracted to things like virtue ethics is because it's the only real ethical philosophy that says personal development isn't is a sort of obligation. Caring about yourself and growing as a person is necessary and what you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is it can be really troubling when people get lost kind of in the sauce of their of their Uh, their politics and their narratives that they build up around those things
0: yeah and i love that i i 100 agree that you'll both be able to make more change focusing smaller and uh the change will be in benefit to your admission Uh, possibly uh it gets real weird when uh, a political narrative is so uh, sensationalized that it's actually counterintuitive to your Mm -hmm. self-interest and so who knows you might do work uh in your own uh, local community and it is uh it's counter to what you're trying to achieve. And also I think the, the added benefit to that is I, one of the like humans fail in predictable ways. Like there's, there's things that are deeply frustrating about just like humans uh, multiplied by the, the masses. And that's how you get into like statistical analysis of behaviors and stuff. And one of which is that like humans inherently gatekeepers. So it's, It's a pain that if you have done the mental legwork and you have come to a conclusion that you want to, like, spread, Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be very hard to, unless you have social capital to uh, basically convince gatekeepers of that ideology. So if you were to, like, let's say, invest a ton in your local community for, Mm -hmm. like, Five years and everyone knew you as that, and then you spread almost any uh, ideology, yep. people would be way more inclined to listen. 100%.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and it's interesting because I mean, often the people who get lost in the sauce of their narratives are really into things like understanding privilege and power dynamics. Um, and while it's true that many of these things can be difficult to acquire, if you understand that the privilege exists, your goal should be to acquire it as much as you can and then use that against the system you're trying to critique. Uh, You should try to get wealthy if you can. And uh, I'm not saying everyone can be wealthy, but most people can. Mm -hmm. Most people don't realize how easy it is to invest in the stock market or something. Uh, In fact, if you do a basic compound interest calculation, if you put $100 in the stock market every month, uh, which is something I think most people could afford, smoke a little bit less weed, go out less, twice or something you know Mm -hmm. if you have if you have an extra hundred dollars if you can get to that point once you're past that once you're at the once you're at the wealth level that you can afford a hundred dollars a month you can have a million dollars in a lifetime easy it's like 50 years or something is what the compound interest calculation is and you only put in something like forty thousand dollars that's awesome yes uh and so here's the thing if you are in your 20s you have a realistic possibility of ending your life as a millionaire if you try and if you're a millionaire think about how much goddamn political power you can have and how much influence you can have. Um, and as a result, I'm a lot more attracted towards political movements that understand wealth as a, as a potential tool, understand entrepreneurship and invention and innovation, that uh, want to align your wealth incentives with your political incentives uh, in like a positive way. Um, and I'm very, very disinterested in philosophies that say that you should... Go and be poor and suffer, and that you should feel guilty all the time. Uh, it's just those philosophies don't pass along very well. Um, you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, ideas that can that can like grow and go on from generation to generation, uh, and like philosophies that are against having children, for example. That's, by definition, that's a philosophy that's not going to pass on. Mm-hmm. Philosophies that hate humans, you know, or philosophies that hate wealth. Um, these are the other philosophies that just don't that are. It's very difficult to grow them mm-hmm. unless you're ma- tapping into like a massive insecure people or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Or I'll hear. Um, and I'm all for. I recycle all kinds of stuff. All yeah. for like oh, yeah. uh, conservation. But uh, there's people that uh, you mentioned uh, like anti-human. Yeah. Like oh, we're the cause of all these mm-hmm. issues. And uh, yeah, there's like fascinating. Uh, uh, like there's an anthropologist that uh, he stated that. Huge layers of carbon buildup is a telltale sign of uh, a developed society and that's one way that uh, there's like this theory that there used to be like ancient developed societies and we would have seen carbon layers yep uh, and so it's a necessity almost yep. and there there is a mindful and like mm-hmm. more sustainable way to do everything but you're exactly right people that uh, almost don't interact with the game like the game exists for a reason we've gotten to this point like it's almost it's almost like wisdom in the bible i don't i'm not religious but there is a lot of good wisdom. sure yeah absolutely and it's filtered through so the game has filtered through it's like it plays into how humans interact with each other and so people that are uh like incredibly against any kind of wealth accumulation Mm -hmm. uh if and as you mentioned prior those people usually are the um the uh, people that are in a privileged position and uh, I heard this, like, uh, I can only remember this fractured uh, statement uh, that it was, like, like we should be fully for uh, collecting wealth because otherwise we're bad custodians. Yep. We're in, like, a place of power and a place of privilege. And then if we throw that away, what do you, it's broken on the bottom floor and the top floor? Yep. Yeah. So, um, but uh, otherwise, I, I think that, like, uh, all of this boils down to as we are more mindful uh, both of our ethics or narratives and what's going on around us uh, will be more effective and oh real fast uh, just to tie it into one thing I was thinking of earlier is uh, like with mathematics that there's certain people that just agree that or like think that uh, you can't prove one plus one equals two
1: yeah.
0: uh, there's like in mathematics there's axioms which are like mass agreed upon truths mm-hmm. in the name of moving forward yeah. and so I think that uh At least as of right now, those same similar things can be identified in ethics or in other fields. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, that being said, uh, it's uh, getting somewhat late. Uh, Is there anything that uh, you wanted to know or wanted to get out of the podcast or anything in particular?
1: Uh, Not necessarily. I will say uh, you mentioned mindfulness. I'll say mindfulness is a virtue Mm. and that if you care about things like being mindful, then perhaps virtue ethics is a system you should be Googling and thinking about. Uh, you seem to be the, the heckin' librarian.
0: Uh, yeah. Do you have any great books for uh, virtue ethics?
1: Uh, yes. Um, so my all-time favorite book, uh, at least wow. in, in nonfiction, is called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem, mm-hmm. which is written by a virtue ethicist who is a psychologist, and it's not a philosophy book. It's just a book about personal development. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> what he fleshes out is a virtue ethics sort of approach. Uh, and in fact, Nathaniel Brandon was the lover of Ayn Rand. Uh, and many oh, of his wow. ideas inspired each other. They had this deep relationship and kind of uh, worked with each other's writings before having a big breakup. But I would say, yeah, if you want to read a book, expose of Self-Esteem. That's the one to do. That's awesome. In that case, uh, it was great. Thanks for joining
0: me, Gabe. Yep. And uh, on that, good night and good luck. Gang, gang.